Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com online and see the list of the podcasts on the homepage. A reminder, it's time to pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Order it for yourself or somebody you care about. It makes a great holiday gift and will be out in time for the holidays. Today, I'm going to list some of the specific things the news media should have done after our mistakes of 2016 and 2017 to get back some of our credibility, things that we should have done but haven't. Maybe you've noticed some of the same things that I have here in 2020, some odd weeks before the next election. When you watch the news or read the news online, it feels a lot like it did in 2016 about this time. And that got me thinking about the 2016 mistakes that were made, and in 2017 for that matter, and how we in the media promised after we got the predictions so wrong and so many people were so surprised that Donald Trump was elected when so many people said that couldn't possibly happen, and we promised the self-correction and the self-reflection. It seems to me, fast forward to today, and we really haven't done anything very differently And because of that, and because of that, we've really removed any doubt as to what we in the media, or at least many of us, have become. We've revealed ourselves in some instances to be little more than propaganda tools for dueling political sides, no longer reporting the news the way journalists once did not all that long ago. Instead, we're competing for the latest anonymous scoop, the latest scandalous rumor, the latest unsupported accusation, We pounce on the supposed bombshell du jour. I've written about this in my new book, Slanted, the terminology bombshell. There's bombshells, we're told, every few days, and they're usually not bombshells. In fact, most of the time, when there really is a bombshell, no one has to tell you it's a bombshell. You would understand that yourself. But we are pouncing on these supposed bombshells du jour, hyping it on the news, and then examining it endlessly with round robins of political operatives giving various views of the bombshell that has been planted by some political operative. And many of us don't even bother anymore to find and report on stories that powerful people and interests aren't pushing. So the news continues to be dominated. Even if you're hearing different sides of a particular story, the news is dominated nonetheless by the discussion of that topic that certain interests want on our plates. And to accomplish this, to be used like this as propaganda tools, we've had to abandon our basic tenets of journalism. I'm not speaking of every journalist, every reporter, but I'm speaking in general of what has largely become the norm. We ignore the suspicious timing of these handout leaks or scandals as if nobody notices it's suspicious. And make no mistake, a lot of these so-called bombshells are not dug up by reporters after months of hard work in Washington, D.C., for example, they're handed to them. And we've seen how much of this is done, how these stories are planted or given out to certain members of the media. I wrote about this in The Smear, 
We were given inside details thanks to some emails that became public. In a lot of instances, you can see how the political operatives use the media. For example, numerous reporters at Politico colluded with certain political operatives. And then some of those same people, such as Maggie Haberman, were promoted to the New York Times, where one can only assume uh, the same sort of reporting is the norm at the New York Times as it was for them at Politico. We failed to disclose or even explore some of these anonymous sources or on-the-record sources, motivations and conflicts of interest when they try to get us to report certain things as if nobody wonders about them. We don't even pretend to assess the true news value of the supposed bombshell. We just tell everybody it's a bombshell when many times to most of America, these things don't amount to much of anything important. Instead, we in the media are too often happy to be of service to the propagandists, inviting them to use us. And then we're rewarded, at least professionally, because our superiors shower us with admiration. Our peers will repeat the reporting, sort of chasing it around like a dog chasing a ball in circles, seeking to confirm the reporting using equally dubious methods. Or on the other hand, maybe we seek to discredit the reporting because we're on the other side of the issue. But once again, we're still talking about the same story that these propagandists want us to talk about and want the public to hear about. Rarely, I think, do we step back and consider that in many instances, the whole drama is being orchestrated by the political puppet masters who are counting their successes by the number of news stories they can manage to generate. But why is this happening in 2020, even after a lot of this has been exposed? I think it's because too many of us utterly failed to examine and correct what was arguably the biggest case of journalistic malpractice in recent times, the widespread misreporting on the failed Trump-Russia collusion narrative. Now, whether you like President Trump or not, you have to acknowledge that his worst and harshest enemies looked into this Trump-Russia collusion theory and came to the conclusion that there was no evidence anything like that ever happened. Everyone from the New York Times on has admitted that. The New York Times, in its staff meeting, admitted they had, as I say, traveled down the wrong fork in the road on that story. The Justice Department's Inspector General acknowledged that, Michael Horowitz. Former CIA Director John Brennan has acknowledged that as he promulgated this theory endlessly on television, on cable news, that in the end he must have gotten, he said, some bad information, kind of scary, coming from the former CIA Director. And of course, Special Counsel Robert Mueller ended up concluding not only was there no evidence that President Trump colluded with Putin or Russia, but he found that there was no evidence that any American had colluded with any Russians, as alleged. Talk about bombshells. That really is a bombshell. But we in the media spent almost no time or energy examining how we could have been so blind and so wrong. We didn't bother to dig into who was behind giving the bad information, who was responsible for the illegal leaks, the slander, the libel, the intelligence abuses, the destruction of evidence. These are the sorts of things that used to make journalists want to get up in the morning. But as an industry, we haven't even seemed to want to bother to get to the bottom of how we could have been so wrong and looked so bad. So I actually made a list of some of the things that I think the news industry should have done between 2016 and today 
that would really largely have helped us clean up our act and provide for more accurate reporting that is not needlessly inflammatory, that would provide for us to be making fewer mistakes and be producing fairer coverage that better serves the public. So here are some of these items. I think we should have, after the Trump-Russia collusion narrative fell apart, commissioned an independent professional examination of any reporting mistakes and had those professionals look at the reasons behind them and release this report publicly so that all members of the press could look at this, so that all members of the public could see that we were really trying to get to the bottom of our troubles and correct them. Also, I think we should have issued corrections for any misreporting, which would require us going back through all of the reporting that we did on this topic or any related topics and come out with some very heartfelt corrections and when warranted, apologies regarding any false reporting and implications made, not the least of which Carter Page is owed one. Nobody can dispute that. An FBI Attorney has now admitted doctoring a document to get improper wiretaps against Carter Page, a former Trump campaign associate. He was slandered in the press. He was followed relentlessly by our intel agencies through improper wiretaps. And the last time I had the opportunity to ask him if anybody has apologized or corrected these sorts of things, the answer was no. Pretty shocking because I do think we owe a responsibility when we know we gave a bad implication, even if we're not being sued, if we have um, reported irresponsibly or if we've gotten it wrong, we owe the public and we owe the wronged person an apology and a correction. Next, I think that we should have, as an industry, made sure we conducted a thorough investigation of who, if anyone, was pulling strings and feeding false information. In other words, Many news outlets were reporting the same bad information over and over again, often from anonymous sources. And in light of the fact that the information turned out to be bad and wrong, I think that that's the point where you as a news organization should say, let's look at our sourcing. Who was it? Were there any common factors of how this information was planted with us and turned out to be wrong? Who is leading us down the road? And then I think that investigation is itself a news story and those findings should be reported. And then, in light of what happened, I think that we as an industry should have made a pledge not to be a tool for what has become a common propaganda smear tactic, where they get a secondary news outlet to publish some sort of rumor or innuendo or irresponsible journalism, because maybe as anxious as some so-called mainstream outlets are to print stuff that's negative about certain people, such as President Trump, maybe sometimes the propagandists want to get out a rumor or a piece of information that even they, the mainstream news organizations, find not supported enough. So these propagandists now know they can go to places like Vox and Mother Jones and Salon and Daily Coast and Huffington Post, and they can go to some of these secondary outlets that a lot of people haven't heard as much about. And once these rumors or innuendo or irresponsible journalism, once they are printed in these secondary outlets, then the mainstream outlets, these propagandists know, will often pick up the topic because, well, everybody's talking about it and we have to get reaction. Well, this is a tactic we shouldn't allow them to use. 
if it's not good enough for us to publish in the first place, if it doesn't meet our standards, even if, quote, everybody is talking about it or the president gets asked about it at a news conference, perhaps mention it. It's perhaps worth 20 seconds or a minute on the news, but don't allow it to dominate the news landscape, which is exactly what the propagandists are after, when it doesn't have in of itself a supported, legitimate news value of its own. Another thing we should have done, and I think this is a big one, we should have returned to standards regarding anonymous sources. I wrote about this in The Smear, how when President Trump was elected, it was used as an excuse by many news organizations to change their rules and standards of how they conduct business because they claimed that President Trump is so uniquely dangerous. And I have argued, you may have heard the opposite, that this is a time, especially if we don't like a personality or a politician, where we must stick to our standards. That's why they exist in the first place. But some of the standards that have slipped are standards that used to exist at news organizations regarding use of anonymous sources. And I was always taught or told or followed the guidelines that they're used primarily just to have background to gather on-the-record information from others. Most of the time, you don't need to or should not use anonymous sourcing, but sometimes what they tell you enables you to find people who can comment on the record and confirm similar or the same information. So anonymous sources in general used to be considered by journalists something that you use only as a last resort when there's no other way that you can report an important legitimate story And if you do resort to that, the standards used to say, you are to specify as much as possible the type of people the anonymous sources are. In other words, are they somebody that may be disgruntled who used to work for somebody they're speaking against? Are they somebody who has a political interest or a competing financial interest that could matter in context if people knew? So we are supposed to specify as much as possible about them and why they cannot be named. And why they cannot be named in a case of a very important political story, such as ones that you've heard lately, should not simply be that, oh, they're afraid that if people find out who they are, they might suffer flack in social media. It should be more than that in important cases where the context matters. And any of their potential conflicts of interest should be disclosed. But if you look back at Reporting by the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and so many others over the last four years, often, if not usually, these standards have not been followed, and we should return to them. We should also stop relying on sources who've provided false information in the past. One obvious example, we know former CIA Director John Brennan has admitted he got it wrong or he had bad information. Why is he ever relied upon for information on similar topics now. We should be pulling away from those experts or contributors or sources who promulgated false information, whether on purpose or not. They're people that provided bad information. Why would we hear from them again unless we are, as I have argued, sometimes little more than propaganda tools for one side or the other or both sides of the political spectrum, just allowing ourselves to be used to hear these views hear this propaganda, hear this often false information. We'll be back with more ideas of what I think the media should have done between 2016 and now, right after a short break. (laughs) 
We are back with my continuing analysis of what I think the media should have done after the mistakes of 2016 and 2017, but did not do, leading us, I think, to find ourselves in a similar situation today. So another thing that we should have done is commit to covering both sides of a story, whether we agree with a side or not. Of course, this is basic journalism, but you may have noticed that we are edging ever closer to positions on certain controversies where we in the media are declaring there aren't two legitimate sides, so we're not even going to give one side any airtime or any space or any ink. This is a huge mistake, and perhaps more than any other single thing, changing the definition of news and journalism today. And I think this bleeds into the phenomenon we are also seeing on social media and the internet, where third parties are picking up and running with that, declaring through their fact checks, which are often flawed, if not completely wrong, declaring that certain views and people and scientists and information and reports and stories are not to be heard or seen by members of the public, as if we can't make up our own minds and do our own research. They're telling us up front what we should and shouldn't hear and, of course, have so often proven to be conflicted on these matters or wrong entirely. So this is very dangerous. We should go back to covering multiple sides of stories, whether we agree with a side or not. We should have committed to hold or even kill stories that turn out not to be checking out well or lacking in documentation rather than trying to salvage them or continue to publish them anyway. If they don't meet the standards, if the goods aren't there, there is no shame. In fact, there's a responsibility to hold or kill the story and not just put it out there on the information landscape. I think we should have committed ourselves to confining political advocacy to the opinion and analysis pages. As you know, that has been another terrible trend in journalism where opinion's been mixed even on the front pages of the New York Times. Reporters' opinion, unattributed, have been mixed in with hard news stories the very opposite of what I learned in journalism college that we were supposed to do or allowed to do as journalists. Something else, we should be attributing allegations and claims that are made in our news reports rather than pretending to know ourselves with certainty firsthand that these things are true. Again, New York Times, guilty of this often. Washington Post, guilty. They will report on some allegation or claim for which they were not in the room or present firsthand, and because somebody they happen to trust, some anonymous source or maybe even an on-the-record source, tells them so, they take a side and say, that thing happened. When what they should be saying is that somebody is claiming or somebody is telling them that thing happened. That helps keep us from making mistakes unnecessarily, and it keeps our reporting honest and fair. But too often now, Claims are made by reporters and journalists or are accepted as if we somehow know them firsthand. I think one good example of this that strikes me a lot when I hear reporters say things like, well, we know the Chinese virus was not made in the Wuhan lab. Well, nobody really knows that. I mean, maybe there's a couple of people on the earth that know that, but the reporters don't know that firsthand. Maybe somebody has told you that and you trust them and believe them. But you as a reporter cannot say, since you haven't been on site at the lab and done the research, 
that this did or didn't happen at the lab. So that's just one obvious example I hear over and over again. We should be avoiding temptation to form conclusions in our stories based on preliminary claims and evidence and information and video because if recent events haven't been a lesson in this, I don't know what will be. There are news outlets that have been paying large settlements and fees to people after defaming them and misreporting. And sometimes even when nobody sues, we have found that we jump to conclusions based on something that we said we thought was obvious or true without knowing the full story. Well, it's so easy as a reporter not to do that. Simply report on what we know is a fact at the moment. There's no need to form a firm conclusion on your own as a reporter. There's no benefit to doing that before facts are known and information is in. And my last point about something that we should have done after 2016 but didn't is be sure that when we are conducting polls as a news organization with the help of a polling organization, and when we are reporting the results of those polls or consulting political analysts, we should be contextualizing their past performance in terms of accuracy. To me, there's very little meaning in a poll, a particular poll with a certain finding, if you don't know how accurate or how wrong that same poll was four years ago. Isn't that worth mentioning if we're holding out a particular poll as meaningful in some way? Don't we have to know in terms of accuracy what the past looked like? It doesn't mean that that's what the present looks like for that particular poll, but it's context that helps viewers at home process that information and make up their own mind as to how much weight and validity they want to give that particular poll. I think because we haven't addressed and fixed our problems, voters and other Americans become disgusted by not just politics and politicians, but by how many of us in the media have seem to have embraced our role as political tools and mouthpieces and sort of left behind the notion that we're here to serve the public with accurate and fair information. And I think this explains, at least in part, why confidence and trust in the media continue to fall. If you're interested in a short version of this list and a summary of what we talked about today, you can look for my article in The Hill. It's titled Journalism or Partnership. So I think if you Google journalism or partnership, the media's mistakes of 2016 continue in 2020, you can find a summary of what we talked about in this podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will check out justthenews.com and all of the Just the News podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, also my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, wherever you like to listen. Pre-order Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. If you would like a free signed book plate sticker, you can get that by emailing me your request at info at CherylAckeson.com. Send me your snail mail address and who you want the book plate signed to, or I won't know where to send them. Support independent journalism and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.